We are back, and wonderful to be back with you. It was great to be in the Boston area last week. A lot of you know from Facebook that uh, Barbara and I got to go to the Red Sox-Astros game. Happened to be the one that the Astros won in the ninth inning. And let me just say, as we were sitting there, I leaned over to Barbara and said, talk about this at my funeral. So it was good. So this morning, in a few weeks, I'm going to talk always when we go away like that. I come back with several sermons, and I'll do a little series, and I'll start that in a couple of weeks of talking about things from New England, just things that I pondered about and saw when we were there. But this morning, we're continuing on with our idea and our thought of unsung heroes in the Bible. Now, this morning, the ones that we're going to talk about are the forgers. And you might say, well, that sounds kind of odd. I don't think that's a positive, right? And so, so you may be thinking of ones that like forge money, and that could be what you think I'm going to talk about today. And really, I use this word forger to kind of confuse you a little bit, because after all, isn't that what preachers do, right? But no, it's not that kind, but I mean the kind that are blacksmiths, those that have work as blacksmiths, and the reason for that is Proverbs 27, 17. You may know this passage as iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another. Now, when I was in, in school, I wish I could tell you that I read this in the Bible was the first place I had heard this, but it wasn't. I was in college, and there was a minister, a couple of ministers at, another, at, a, at a congregation that asked me and a few other men my age, young men, college men, if we would be in a Bible study with them called Iron Sharpening Iron. You talk about an honor. It was if these guys that are this much older than me would be willing to have me in a study, absolutely I'll be a part of that. And I thought, I wonder where they came up with the phrase. Well, it came from the Bible. And so where I should have obviously known. But as iron sharpens iron, one man, or you could say one person, sharpens another. And so how will all this apply? What does that mean from the book of Proverbs that one person sharpens another? And, you know, we don't live in, in especially in Houston, most of us are not, are not doing manual labor very much, and I'm certainly not, as you know. But what does that mean? How would you apply that? So I'll tell you what I did. Because I don't really know how all of this works, and there is a difference in iron and steel and metal, but, but there's enough similarity for what we're talking about today. I called a forger, I called a blacksmith to find out, my nephew. His name is Bart Weir, he lives in the, just outside the metropolis of Visai, Oklahoma, and he has his own business. It's called Black Locust uh, uh, Forging. And so what he does is... He makes knives and other materials for a living. And so I just called him. You can see this is his picture and his pet deer there named Buck. And so, <laughs> maybe not exactly a pet. So I asked him about, how do you make a knife? I mean, what do you do when you go about doing that? How do you shape it? And he said, well, first of all, it's easier to start with metal that's near the desired size of the knife, because obviously that would make sense. If you want one this big, you ought to start with, you know, a piece of metal that's about that big, and your job will be a lot easier and a lot faster if you can do that. He said, also, you have to remember or understand that if the metal is too thick, then you've got to squish the metal to the desired size, and then maybe you'll have a piece of metal that's too short, and you stretch it to the right length. You have to do all this work with it, he said, and then you put it on the belt grinder. 
Well, I'm thinking, wow, that's, you know, that's a lot of work, and, but it's not that hard. I mean, you know, you just kind of get it hot and move it around and put it on the grinder, and then you're done. And so I said, so you're done. He went, no, we're just starting. I was like, oh, okay. And so he said, you put it back to the fire to change the molecular structure to refine the internal grain of the structure. Wow, that guy is smart, let me tell you. I don't even know what he's talking about. But he said, that's what you're doing in this process. And so he said, you bring it to a critical temperature so it's not magnetic. And then you air cool it. And then you do this three more times. And then you heat it up once more. And you quench it at just the right time. I said, well, what's just the right time? He said, you'll know. I said, well, how would you know? You'll know. I said, well, how would you know? He said, well, you wouldn't know, but other people would know. You just know when it's the right time if you are a forger. And so then he told me some other things about different types of steel. He said some steel needs different treatments, like some need air, some need oil. Some need salt water. Now, obviously, I'm thinking about people as he's talking, not about actual metal and steel. Thanks to Sean Freeman, incidentally, for bringing this anvil today. You talk about a chore. That thing weighs 200 pounds. And so I'm thinking about people and realizing, wow, it's like people. You can't treat everybody exactly the same way every time. Some people need something different sometimes. As a parent, I learned by having two daughters that the way that they were disciplined were very different in order to get the response that you wanted. And so in order to get the steel to do what you want, sometimes you treat it with air, sometimes with oil, sometimes with salt water. And you temper it to take out the brittleness, but it's got to stay tough. So you've got to make sure you do this the exact right way, that it's not brittle, but it's still tough. And then you take it back to the belt grinder again. And then you start the sanding process. And he told me, he said, you can sand and sand and sand forever, deciding how much of a mirror you want that knife to look like. He said, really, if you want to, you don't even have to ever end. You can just keep sanding and sanding and sanding. Wow, as I think about people and the way we grow in the Lord and the way we become better, I see a lot of similarities and understand why the writer of Proverbs talks about iron sharpening iron as one man or one person sharpens another. And so I said, so you're finally done, right? He said, sort of. Now you start working on the handle. And so the process is not exactly done yet. There is still work to, done, to be done. So how do we help each other be better? Because really that's what this is all about, right? That's why the illustration was used by the writer of Proverbs. How do we help each other better as iron sharpens iron, as one man helps another? Well, obviously as you hear that process, some of that's not so easy, right? It's not easy being put in the fire, and then it's not easy being quenched, and it's not easy being put on the belt grinder, and it's not easy to be sanded. But all of that is how one person sharpens another. It's how we come to look more like Jesus. And it makes me think of some examples in the Bible. One of those in the book of Acts in the New Testament is Apollos. And Apollos was this man that got everything almost right. 
You ever heard that before, that phrase? Well, you got almost everything right, except maybe what was major, right? Sometimes they say to us. Apollos was this preacher. Apparently, he was a really good preacher from what we can figure out. But his doctrine or his theology, really, it wasn't just doctrine or theology. It was his knowledge was just off a little bit. In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 18, in verses 24 through 26, we see this, this is the, most, the primary encounter with Apollos. It says, Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor. And he taught about Jesus accurately, though he only knew of the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home, and they explained to him the way of God more adequately. So he's this great preacher, it sounds like, and he knows a lot about Jesus, but he only knows about John's baptism. Now, you may understand what this means. It means he probably doesn't know about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but he knows about Jesus, but he doesn't understand this part. He doesn't know about that sermon that Peter preached in Acts 2 that, that said to be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But he knows a lot. And I think it's interesting what Aquila and Priscilla do here. They don't stand up in the middle of the sermon and say, false teacher. They're not doing that at all. They're not stopping in the middle of the sermon and saying, this man is preaching a lie. He doesn't know what he's talking about. They don't do that. They don't go to the first century social media and write him up. There is nothing like that happening. But instead, what it appears happens is they wait until the end of the sermon and then they go up to Apollos, and then they take him home, and then the Bible says that they teach him more adequately when, when he encounters Priscilla and Aquila. So what he needed, what Apollos needed, was his doctrine or his theology sanded a little bit. And so what you would do is take that sandpaper and sand it. Now it looks almost right, it changes a little, but not too much unless you can see up close and you might not even understand. So they would have sanded the theology of Apollos. Talk to him in a way that he understood, just like the scripture reading today, with all gentleness, in a way that would help him change. He needs that sanding in what he understands. It's not that he doesn't love Jesus. It's not that he's against Jesus. It's just he doesn't know, he hasn't understood it this way before. So then there's another two men that we're going to talk about here for a minute, Barnabas and Cephas. And they had some rough spots. And I don't know what you know about Barnabas and Cephas. We have folks in our audience every Sunday that are on every uh, spectrum as far as when you consider Bible knowledge. Some of you have gone to church for, for, for 80 or 90 years. And some of you, this may be your very first Sunday. Let me tell you that Cephas is a man that usually we call him Peter. His name was Cephas. His nickname was Peter, which means rock or rocky would be maybe the way we would say it today. But rock, that he was a, he was a rock, not the rock, but a rock. And so his name is usually Peter, and he is a man that loved Jesus. And he is a man that 
preached that sermon we talked about just a minute ago, and he was an apostle. And then there's Barnabas, who wasn't an apostle, but Barnabas was an incredible, uh, incredible encourager. Matter of fact, the name Barnabas is also a nickname, which means son of encouragement. He is the guy that you want to be the greeter at the front door because he makes everybody feel good whenever you walk in. He is the encourager. He's the one you want in charge of hospital ministry because he comes to your room and you just feel better after Barnabas has been there. He's the guy that you want to make you feel good. That's what he does. He encourages you to be better than what you were before. The kind that can build you up. You talk about a mentor, it's Barnabas. But Barnabas wasn't perfect. And Cephas wasn't perfect. They ended up falling into a sin. And so the Apostle Paul is going to confront them about their sin in the book of Galatians. And in Galatians chapter 2, in verses 11 through 13, it says, When Cephas, or Paul, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews told him, told, uh, the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Now, this is kind of incredible. What's happening here is these aren't just Gentiles. These are Christian Gentiles. And so those of the circumcision group here, or the circumcision party, if you have an older version of the, of the Bible, what that is is it's Jewish Christians who they have a Jewish background who have become followers of Jesus, and now you have these people who have been Gentiles who become followers of Jesus, and there are all kinds of issues that go on, and a lot of it was can you eat together or not eat together? And so instead of having this integrated congregation sometimes of people from different backgrounds, you would have those of just a single. And so Peter, Cephas, had known certainly well that God accepted the Gentiles back because he had a vision about it in the book of Acts. So he should have known of all people. Barnabas, the great encourager who's been going to Gentiles and converting them as a missionary, he ought to know. But now here they are eating over on the side. And so there are a lot of different categories. If we had time to talk about it, what would you call the sin of Cephas and Barnabas? And if nothing else, at the very least, you call it discrimination here. And you call it fear. They are afraid of what other people are going to say about them. I can understand a little bit about what fear is like. The other night, whenever we were at Fenway Park sitting in that game, and, and I said to Barbara, are we going to cheer? And we decided we were going to, but, you know, it's all Boston around us. And then all at once, she was on her feet. So I had to get up on my feet too. And I thought, they are going to kill us. But we survived. And then we got louder and it was really fun. But there is fear here in these men who are shrinking back from talking to the Gentiles about Jesus and being, welcoming them in as Christians. This is what we would call rough spots in their faith, maybe not in their doctrine. Their doctrine may have gotten it right in what they're supposed to do. They're just not living it. So sometimes when you have a rough spot, it's not just a little sanding, but Paul comes 
and he pounds them. And he tells them to their face, you've got to change. Now maybe he's gentle and it wasn't like that, but it felt that way. You know what I'm talking about? When a person confronts you, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's an elder, maybe it's one of your kids, maybe it is one of your friends. And they say, you've got to change. What you're doing is not right. What you're doing is against God. It's against our family. It's against Jesus. It's against the church. It's against the nation, whatever. You've got to do something different than what you're doing right now. Now, maybe the words they use are sweet and kind. But you know what it feels like when the spots are really rough and they've got to be put on the grinder and they've got to be sanded and they've got to go into the fire? What that's like? Well, I think about Cephas and Barnabas. They needed their minds stretched Oh, that hurts, doesn't it? There are things that sometimes we think, I would never believe so-and-so, or, or such-and-such. And I may realize after time, I need to believe such-and-such. Such, or I would never do. And then I realize I need to do. Or I think, I will always do. And I realize I need to never do. And a Christian brother or sister comes alongside me and helps lead me more perfectly toward Christ. And sometimes that's easy and sometimes it's very difficult. Sometimes depending on how big my blind spot is and sometimes depending on how stubborn I am. It all can be different depending on the situation. And then I think about another situation and actually if you were here last Sunday night, Wayne Roberts talked about this subject, and I uh, had already written this sermon before we left, so it's not fair that he talked about it before I did, so I'm going to talk about it again. But we go back to the story of David and Bathsheba. Many people know that. It's a pretty common one just in, 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 in uh, even secular, the secular world. But in that story, true story, David was supposed to be out with his men, but David was at home. And one night he goes and looks out the window, looking out over his kingdom, I guess, trying to get cool air, didn't have air conditioning in those days. And he looks out and he sees Bathsheba. And I won't say a lot, we've got lots of folks in the audience, younger folks. He sees Bathsheba, and he decides he wants Bathsheba, and he calls for her to come to his house. And she's married, but he's off fighting David's war. And he calls her husband Uriah to come home. So that Uriah will think, because now Bathsheba is going to have a child for Uriah to think that it's his. And Uriah is not going to have anything to do with that. So David says, I've got to do something here because the world's closing in on me. So Uriah, David tells Uriah's commander, send Uriah to the front line. And let, David, let Uriah die on the front line. Must have been awful. You can imagine what that might have felt like to Bathsheba, that now this man she's with would do that to her husband. And so Nathan, who is the advisor, the mentor, the iron sharpening iron, comes to David. 
2 Samuel 12, verses 1 through 7. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. The poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, it drank from his cup, and it even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking, taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man, and he prepared it for, prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man, and he said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and he had no pity. Let me say this in a little bit different words of what's happening here. So there are two men. Nathan comes in to David. David's there enjoying himself, assuming nobody knows what's going on. He's in the clear, although in his mind he is living in guilt. You know that? You can smile and act like everything's fine. You can sing. I'm, I'm singing in the rain, but yet on the inside you are hurting because you know what you have done. And so there David is, and maybe sitting on, on his throne in his palace or wherever he may be, and Nathan walks in, and Nathan said, hey, I have a story for you. Okay, tell me a story. And then David realizes this is like a real story. And he says, there was this, these two guys. One was really wealthy. He had a lot of cattle. He had a lot of lambs. I mean, he had a lot. And, you know, everything, you know, anything he wanted, he could have. And then there was this other guy, a really poor guy, who had one lamb, just one. And he loved that lamb. Matter of fact, that lamb became a house pet. Lamb lives with the family. And they let the lamb eat from the table. And they let the lamb even drink out of their cup. I mean, can you imagine? He's just drinking out of the cup. And this lamb even sleeps with them in their bed. Can you imagine? And they just love this little lamb. But then in those days... In the Middle East, if you were to have a visitor come to your house, you are to have a feast for your guest that comes. You are to kill the fatted calf or kill the lamb. And so the wealthy man thinks, boy, I've got this guest coming, and now I need to feed him a lamb. But I don't want to take any of my own stuff. I mean, think about how much I have, and I would hate to lose anything at all, even to help my guest. I mean, I've got the cattle and I've got the lambs. So I know what I'll do. I will take it from that poor guy over there. I mean, what could he say anyway? I'll take his pet lamb and serve it as a meal to my guest. David is so furious as he hears this story. And how in the world could that man do that? That man should die for the life of the lamb. He needs to pay back four times for what he has done to that man and to his family. Can you imagine the pain that they feel? And David gives, or Nathan gives, a very famous line. And he says, you're the man. David is as heartbroken as a person maybe could be at that point when he realizes that. And by the time we get to 2 Samuel chapter, chapter 12, verse 13... It says, then David said to Nathan, 
I have sinned against the Lord. He realizes the pain of what he has done and what he has caused. Obviously, it wasn't that he took the pet lamb. What he did was took another man's wife. The only thing he has, David has a harem, and this man has one wife, and he takes it. How in the world could David do something like that? And he realizes his sin. In that moment, David needs squished. of what he's done he has hurt that woman Bathsheba he has hurt her husband so to speak by having him killed he has hurt his nation he has hurt his heavenly father he has hurt his own family and he needs squished and iron sharpens iron. And so Nathan becomes that one that comes in and he doesn't use harsh words except to confront him with his sin and to say, you're the man. Sometimes all we need is a little sanding. And sometimes what we need are the rough, rough spots to be knocked off and to be changed Sometime our whole molecular being needs changed. Oh, it can be difficult. You know what the great thing is about the iron or about the steel? Is you can make it do what you want it to do. But we can't make people do what we want them to do. They have to decide. God is not going to make them do what he wants them to do till later, I guess you might say. He wants us to decide. He wants us to go along with it and say, yes, I have sinned, I've done wrong. Yes, I need to be changed. Lord, change me. Do whatever you need to to me. Change me so that I'll be like you. Sharpen me, Lord. Sharpen me so that I will be what you want. So I'll leave you with this today. What is forming me? I can guarantee you something is forming you. You may say, nothing's forming me. Really? Just ask people around you what forms you. How many people, I'm not going to ask for this, how many people are all excited about the Astros who didn't even know we had a baseball team, right? What's around us forms us. You know, our little time in the New England states was so wonderful, and, and I'm excited to talk about some of those things later, and, and, and it's so beautiful, and, and the history, and the food, I mean, it's great. You know what bothers me about it? Is how little religion it felt like was there. And the churches that were there, I can tell you by their flags that I would not be in line with them. And you know, you go into the, into the museums 
and see these great quotes about God. And I think, what changed? How did that happen? And so sometimes we're a little bit insulated in Houston, not completely, but we feel a little, we're, we're more insulated than we may realize because at least you can run into some Christian people pretty easily here that are devout in their faith and you know they're going to be in a worship service somewhere on Sunday morning. At least you can find that. What changed? Something is forming, folks, that is either looks like God or it doesn't. And if I'm finding the things around me that are forming me, that are going into my brain, that are not, if I'm realizing they're not like God, I'm in trouble. If what goes into my mind is purely secular, if what goes into my mind is pornography, if what goes into my mind are, are, is full of, 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 of hatred and and. and and hate toward other people, if that's going into my mind, those things don't look like God. Not at all. And I can say, well, I can read that, and that's not going to bother me. I can watch that, and that's not going to form me. Really? Because my guess is we are all being formed all the time. It's not a guess, it's a no. I want to be more like God than I am today. I want to be more like Jesus. I want to be formed in his image more than I am right now. So in order to be a follower of Jesus, one thing we have to have is, is humility. Because humility means that I am willing to sometimes have this hammer come down on me. Even though it might be done with gentleness, it feels like a hammer. And I have to be willing to have humility to change when I am wrong and to also be formed in ways to be better than what I am right now. And I need to put my faith in Jesus. And I am praying today that your faith is in Jesus. And that you are willing to stand up for Jesus no matter what is around you. As I said the other night, it is easy to stand up for Jesus. It is easy to stand up for the Astros at Minute Maid Park. It is, you have to think about it for a second when you're at Fenway Park. It is easy to stand up for Jesus when you are at Memorial Church of Christ. You might think about it more when you're downtown on Friday night or you're at work on Monday morning. What I pray is you're thinking about it so that you will do it. Have faith in Jesus and stand up for him wherever you are. And maybe this morning you need to be baptized into Jesus and say, I am standing for Jesus. No matter what I'm standing for him, I will be baptized in him. I want him to wash away my sins. I, but even more than that, I want to be in Christ. I want the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's not just about my sins being washed away. It's about I want Jesus. And you can be baptized this morning. You can walk down here. You can talk to me after the service. And we will, whatever, you can do it publicly, privately. We'll make sure that you can be baptized into Christ even today. And others of us, we need prayers. And maybe our prayers are, are I just need faith. And maybe you want to come down and have the whole church pray for you because we would love that. But it could be, hey, I, 
I'm going to think about this, and I need to write it. I'm going to write it to the elders, elders at mcoc.org, and have them pray for me privately or maybe publicly. We tell them to do it publicly, and they'll do that. Or maybe it's a conversation in the car today with either a friend or a family member as we drive away and we say today, help me be more like Jesus than I've been lately. Help me to look like Christ. Come this morning as we stand and sing.